0: race gender sex what's your identity is religion or faith part of your identity can you bring it into the workplace can your boss take care of the legal issues do they have an inclusion strategy are they literate in what religion means to you maybe they should give this podcast a listen this is a religion at work podcast Welcome, Tri-Faith listeners. I am Eric Serrion, Deputy Director of the Tri-Faith Initiative, and welcome to another ROI podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. We're going to dive into religion, the workplace, the Corn Belt, and we're going to talk about everything in between. So a very big welcome to Professor of Religious Studies and Gender and Women's Sexuality Studies at the University of Iowa, Professor Christy Nabin warren Hi, how are you? <laughs> Doing well. Thank you so much for taking the time again to join us and to chat. Of
1: course. I've been looking forward to it. So thanks for having
0: me. Very nice. Very nice. And, and um, I was, you know, in my research of who, who you are and, and what you do, so many titles, so much work, so much fantastic work. Um, it's pretty fair to say you're just a scholar of religion, Right.
1: Yeah, I would say I'm a scholar of religion, migration, and ethnicity. I would say that Ah, those mm -hmm. are the primary things that I look at. And I think religion has always been at the core of what I've studied. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I've always been interested in and studied Latinos primarily Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Latinos and migration and how religion has helped them deal with all the challenges in their lives and most recently, uh, work I've had in the workplace too, um, nice. and mm-hmm. more, even more recent refugees. But mm-hmm. I think of you course. know just how people who have been marginalized are coping and dealing with those life's challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And religion is one of those things that helps people get through.
0: So let's dive in. Let's go ahead and dive into your background. How did your um, your, your academic, your life's work, really? take you from where you started to this intersection between religion and work?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a great question, Eric. I have realized, you know, life is a journey, and the journey Mm -hmm. of an academic uh, is part of that journey. So, yeah. So, I've always been interested in work, and I think I've Mm -hmm. always addressed what anthropologists of religion, what we call our interlocutors. So, my interlocutors have been in South Phoenix, Arizona. That is oh, when I first got into the academic study of religion as a, mm-hmm. a master's student out in Arizona State. So I was really interested in what my interlocutors in South Phoenix, how they were balancing their work lives and as parents with their devotion to the Virgin of Guadalupe. Um, and most recently, um, when I started thinking about what is the next book project, you know, mm-hmm. I and, and I realized that, you know, the meatpacking industry here. In our state of Iowa and in the broader corn belt is huge. Massive. And it employs, yeah, massive. And it employs primarily um, you know, minorities, people of color, Latinos, mm-hmm, African mm-hmm. refugees, Vietnamese, Burmese, whites are a very uh small number of those workers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh in a sort of on the line, upper upper management, they tend to be more numerous. Right. And so I sort of you know work was always sort of a peripheral part of my research, but it was a priest friend of mine, Father Joseph Sia, who is the former parish priest in Columbus Junction, Iowa, and now he's in West Liberty, Iowa, and with mm-hmm. the Diocese of Davenport. and Father Joseph said we were talking one day and he said, you know, I said, you know a lot I say, most of the people I'm interviewing, the Latinos, mexicanos primarily Guatemalans, uh, work at Tyson. and he said, you know I think you need a tour of Tyson. I know a guy there. Let me talk to him. And so Father Joseph has been such a good friend and partner in my research. And he was absolutely right. I needed to see. So I had a couple tours of Tyson in Columbus Junction. And then later on, I spent a week at Iowa Premium Beef as a new hire going through the training, getting to be on the line, not actually getting to do the cuts of the meat because there mm-hmm. you know, were liability issues, although right. I wanted to. But I tried to simulate as much as possible the work that the men and women i've been interviewing were doing and one of the things i was really interested in is you know traditionally scholars you know um now this has changed in the last 15 years i'd say but scholars you know started out by looking at religion how it's practiced in places that we think of as religious places right like churches and temples and synagogues but the the Scholars that I identify most with are those scholars who study religion in everyday life So yeah, we can look at the parish. Yeah, we we can look at the church But let's also go to work where interlocutors spend, you know, most of their waking hours And see how religion works for them there. How does it get them through? How do they draw on religion? Do workplaces make accommodations? Um, Are there constraints on their religion? um and so yeah and so i looked at that a lot more in this in this newer book project
0: that is amazing that you not just wanted to get that field experience if you will of 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 the worker and being able to apply that so um let's let's zoom out even actually a little bit from there so as a scholar of religion among other things why does the workplace matter why is it important for employers to be cognizant that people want to be their full religious selves in the workplace
1: yeah well i think that it's a fine line right i think because one never wants to privilege one religious tradition belief theology Mm -hmm. over another right but i think that You know, there have been all kinds of sociological studies. So one of the things that I have my students look at right at the beginning of the semester in every class are like Pew reports, um, you know, various sociological reports that kind of show the landscape about where most Americans are with religion. Now, while, you know, rates of membership have been on the decline for some time the vast majority of Americans still claim to be religious or spiritual and say that it matters in their lives. And so I think that employers need to keep that in mind. And and if they want to create a positive, holistic workplace, it's one of those things that they need to consider. In addition to, you know, family leave policy, maternity, family leave. Anything that it takes to create a positive, healthy work environment, and for you know, migrants in, in the book, in the book um, that's coming out next year, Meatpacking America, I look at primarily refugees in the meatpacking plant. And when I use the terminology refugees, I look at economic refugees, those refugees who are de facto, also de jure refugees. So those who are legalized refugees by U.S. categories. Mm-hmm. But I also call those who are economic refugees, refugees as well. And for refugees by and large, not only just those I interviewed for the book, but but in general, refugees have a deep attachment to uh, religious places and religious theologies and beliefs, uh, you know, in all the stories that, I, that I've that i collected from my interlocutors, it was really profound, Eric, that, you know, as, you know, my Guatemalan friend was talking about riding La Bestia and getting across and, you know, almost being raped on the trail and just horrendous experiences that some of them had or almost had, it is, was her faith in Dios, it was her faith in, faith in God, you know, that got her through. And of course, not for all refugees, but there's a spiritual and religious center for so many of the people I talk to, the very people who make their way to Iowa and, you know, Omaha and Nebraska. And, and, who- and,
0: and this religion being so core, so intrinsic to somebody's yeah. identity, um, you know, bring it back to the workplace. I feel like sometimes we expect people to check that at the door, but how c- possibly could you? Right.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. I think there's such a fear for some reason. I don't understand it, Eric, because I feel like, you know, I've heard so many times, wow, well, you know, let's not talk about religion and politics. And I said, but isn't that one of the reasons why we're, we're in such a predicament now in the United States with our national discourse and our lack mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. positive discourse. Like I'm all into, you know, Biden's let's talk about healing. You know, maybe one of the ways we can start healing is to acknowledge each other's differences and differences of opinion, where we go to church, our theologies, whatever, but, you know, for companies to start respecting that more without privileging one, or, I think for me, of course, as a scholar and as just as a human, I think that's problematic when one belief system is privileged over another. But if one can maintain that balance, I know some companies have done that. Like I've heard, you know, read some good things about IBM, for example, some of the things that they have done, other workplaces where they create a culture of acceptance and, you know, interfaith, intercultural dialogue, you know, why not have uh, work be a place where you can be, your whole self can be celebrated. Right.
0: And when it comes to right. intercultural dialogue, um, mm-hmm. um, would you be able to share anything further on, on what you've seen that, that works or a model of sorts?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, I'm really glad you asked that because that's something that I think I want to look at more in the next project. Mm, um, mm. So right now I don't feel like I have enough data, but I will tell you just from my own uh, field work what I'm what I'm seeing, and just for your listeners too, um, some of my colleagues at Rice University in sociology are doing like bi- a big study now on religion in the workplace. It's more like quantitative. Uh, And so if you look up Rice University, I think it's religion at work. I think that's the title of it. Um, They're doing like really big kind of survey quantitative data stuff. Mine right now is very qualitative, fine grained kind of stuff. And I'm going to probably partner with them uh, down the road. But right now, if you're if you're interested in that, check out Rice University. But in my own work, what I noticed is that so Tyson. Tyson is one of the meatpacking plants where I did field work in Columbus Junction. So I went there in Iowa Premium Beef in Tama, Iowa, and I've been given permission to name these sites by these corporations in my work. Um, so Tyson is a really interesting place because they have the I would say the world's largest chaplaincy program in the in a workplace. Their chaplaincy work, workplace. Um, one could say it's highly successful in in on many fronts. They provide a space where folks, so they have a chaplain in every packing plant. And I've become good friends with Joe Belay, who's at the Columbus Junction plant. He's a great guy. But my critique of the program would be that it uh, tends to privilege Christocentrism and Christian belief systems. I think they're trying to open it up, but I think that the setup is very Christocentric. And I think that, um, I would probably personally make some recommendations to them, would they be interested in, in ways to make it more religious pluralism in the vein of like Di- Diana Eck, what she does at like Harvard. Um, so I think it works, but I think that there's room for improvement. I think Joe Play, as an ordained Methodist minister, a former army chaplain, and most of the Tyson chaplains, by the way, are military chaplains which is really interesting and because think about it right when you're an army chaplain you're in the midst of a a lot of violence and a lot of bloodshed Mm -hmm. potentially Mm -hmm. right um and i think it's no surprise and it's no accident that the chaplains that become the chaplains at tyson are vast majority um army chaplains right joe blay himself was a chaplain and narrowly escaped um getting bombed when he was in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Now Iowa Premium Beef, um, they don't have a policy per se in their human resources, but what I what I have seen is really interesting because there are there's a growing number of Muslim employees at Iowa Premium Beef. No uh, Muslim workers at Tyson Pork, of course, because pork is haram to <laughs> Muslim theology. Right, one doesn't eat pork, one isn't around pork. Right, but but as a Muslim, you you can work in the beef packing and actually Iowa premium and Beef is certified Halal um, beef and so what I noticed and I actually write about this in the book, um, the forthcoming book is that um, when I was in the locker room which is one of like the break rooms for women there was a small area in the corner of the locker room where a small group of Muslim women, about a dozen of them had carved out, like literally cleaned up the area and they had like a shower curtain, like a, like a half circle with a curtain. And they had their prayer rugs draped over the side. And when I was in there trying to be really discreet because I didn't want to interrupt their call to prayer. Right. Right. So think about if you're a Muslim and you work a 12 hour shift, you're going to have a couple call to prayers Um, Muslims are obligated to pray five times a day and you can get special dispensations and make it up later but the Muslims I know and who I interviewed for the project you know do their best to try to do it at work and so it was interesting to me I talked to the human resources head Jenny who said, Oh, yeah, we're cool. I mean, I'm paraphrasing Jenny, right? She said, yeah, pretty much. You know, we're cool with with Muslims taking breaks to go to their call to prayer, as long as they don't abuse abuse of privilege. And as long as they clear it with their line manager ahead of time, and they can get a replacement for their position. So let's say they're doing a certain kind of trimming or whatever with mm-hmm. a wizard knife or whatever, they would just make sure that someone could cover them. And so I was impressed with what I saw and what I heard in that, well, we don't want to have a policy, but we want to respect religious diversity and the need um, to pray. And, and the women, it was just really amazing because um, it's really hard to keep these places clean, right, because as hard as they try, there's always a layer of grease, you know, from the meat and it's just constant production. And they had managed to really carve out a really clean, not not literally carve out, right, right <laughs> but right. to actually make a space where they could fulfill their religious obligations. And so I've been thinking a lot about the differences between what Tyson's doing and what IPB is doing. And I talked with IPV about having a policy, and they were a bit nervous about creating a policy because they were afraid of basically the slippery slope of privileging one tradition over another. But that's something that I would be really interested in doing to actually work with companies as someone who engages in religious pluralism and dialogue and helping them craft you know, policies and statements to make workplaces more accepting places.
0: That's, that's exactly the crux of what we want ROI at TriFaith to be. And um, that, that accommodating attitude um, is a great start it's a great start. Both, both, uh, I want to give props to Tyson for having that Champlaincy program because that is an investment that a lot of companies don't have. So that accommodation is a good start. I would love to see Tyson take it to that next level and and be pluralistic in in its religious, you know, accommodations, Uh, but also IPB another, you know, I have to give them uh, um, kudos for allowing that space to be, to be held. However, uh, you and I both know, and I want to, I want to stress to our listeners that policy has to come and has to, to be installed to, to, to really put some, some, uh, we'll put some, some teeth behind these, you know, wanting to wish, be respectful, things like that. Why is policy so important when we're talking about these kind of religious accommodations? Yeah,
1: I think it's policy. Cause I think there's a lot, there can be a lot of talk about respect and, but you know, the rubber has to hit the road here, right? Let's just be blown about it. And I mean, right. I think these as we've seen with COVID, right, as we've seen with COVID, hitting the packing plants, and quite honestly, their response was not as swift as it should have been. There's been a lot of backtracking, right? So I think there's a saying, like, I always tell my students when they write, show, don't just tell, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing applies with the packing plants, right? Okay, you need to show, not just tell. Your workers, who you call family, that you actually consider them family, and a way to consider them family to show is to show them via policy that we respect, that we have a growing number of deeply devoted Muslim employees, or you know Christian employees. I've noticed a rising number of Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you know, and we want to respect and honor. And these are some of the ways that we're going to do that. Um, I think you know, at the University of Iowa, for example one of the things that the university has done better in recent years is to actually say, these are religious holidays. For a long time, it was just the Christian holidays. Right. And it's like, Hey, Mm -hmm. if you're a member of this group and you celebrate this, let your teacher know your professor know, and you will be accommodated. Uh, and so I think that, that there has to be a greater, um, the showing, not telling, you know, in a way you can show is having it down in the manual procedures, your mop and your new hire. You know, um, I went through the new hire training and there was nothing said at IPV, nothing said about religious pluralism and honoring people's traditions, you know. So I think that that could be a start to put something in there like a paragraph, you know.
0: Absolutely. And I think that the, and I've heard that reason before, that slippery slope arguments that if if we put in th- this policy in place uh could it be abused or could, could that open a pandora's box if you will um and, and i think it, it does take a, a a modicum of bravery we'll call it a courage to put in some of these policies and, and work out the kinks maybe afterwards or or, or prioritize this accommodation in policy because that's i think that's the more important piece
1: i totally agree with you eric i totally agree and Again, going back to that, oh, let's don't talk about religion and politics and mm-hmm. polite conversation. I think mean, we we have to address it because it matters to so many people, right? And we see this in all the polls and all the the right. studies that it really matters to people.
0: And, and, and so let's actually go back to that piece of the conversation we were having earlier, where we were talking about um, maybe some of the civil discourse or discourse that is happening in, in America right now. You know, I'm a I'm a firm believer. And, and and actually, uh, personally is a firm believer that it starts with empathy, which is bred from understanding and getting to understand the religious other or getting to just understand the other is such a key piece to this discourse. So this is my my hopefully great segue into I'm sure you've heard a lot of great stories about some of the workers and what what religion or what their lives. A um, mean to them, and how they bring it into the workplace. Could you give us maybe one, uh, one or two of these stories that you might have heard while doing your research, doing your work?
1: Yeah, yeah. I um, I wish I had, I had the uh, book pulled up. I could read you some quotes, but I can kind of, I can paraphrase some for I'm you. Serious. What's what really struck me was um, one of the things that I've always been interested in is the embodiment of religion and how people wear it on their bodies and how people, it's it's such an embodied experience. And Fernando, I'm using a pseudonym here, um, talked with me about length. He's Catholic. He's uh, very involved in the Knights of Columbus at his uh, parish. And he talked at length with me about how he wore his scapular and his rosary under his smock And how during a work shift, how he would just like knowing that she was there protecting him, meaning La Virgen de Guadalupe, just really got him through the shift because, you know, he worked really grueling job, you know, repetitive injuries, you know, where he was moving the same parts of his body. And for him, it was those tangible religious objects that he felt, that he felt, literally felt her presence i um talked with other men so i interviewed a lot of men a lot of women both i'd say for this book and um having tattoos uh of la virgen de guadalupe in particular these are catholics so there are a lot of catholics a lot of latino catholics i interviewed uh, tattoos of her where they felt like they could bring her in with them into the meatpacking plant. And she was with them um, in a place that is dangerous where they had to really be careful because one wrong move and you could cut yourself or be mm-hmm. hurt by another blade. Um, I also uh, talked with quite a few women who worked in the packing plant who also worked in like the egg candling So there's a lot of different CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations in Iowa and in the Midwest. And so we have places where hogs are bred, where um, chicken, where eggs are candled. And these women would talk about how hot it would be! I remember in the egg handling story with Esperanza, whose what is her actual name? Esperanza, which means hope, and she would she was you know had a lot of hope. I mean, and she would talk about how how hot she would get and tired. And just how repetitive the job was, and she would start thinking about her faith and God and the Virgin and and how and her family and how she was doing this job to provide for her family so that her children wouldn't have to do this job. And that was something that was really powerful. All of the men and women I talked to who either worked in the packing plant or one of its various related sort of big ag industries, candling, um, hog insemination. Um, hog castration, um, you know, you name it, all these different interconnected industries. And they would talk about how it was, how God and the Virgin protected them and Jesus protected them in their job, followed them when they came home and was always with them. So they always talked about the presence of the divine and always talked about how they were making the sacrifice. The language of sacrifice was a really big part of their linguistic but that they also didn't want their kids to do this job because they wanted their kids to go to college and they wanted their kids to, to to be able to do better, you know. And so one of the things going back to our conversation about what companies could be doing, I'm telling you, you know, the the immigration refugee stream is not going to always be what it is now. And I think that there needs to be a lot of deep thought put into how to get the next generation of workers. You've got to do more. They've got to do more. And maybe one of the things that they could do more is make it a, a, a place where they could live out their whole selves. Part of their whole selves is their religious lives, you know?
0: Absolutely. And I, <laughs> I, I things,
1: stories. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm,
0: yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. I, 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 I just want to drive that point home. It's something I noticed that you were saying and something that I think all of our listeners can attach themselves to or relate to is that underlying principle of people that are working to provide for their families or working for their kids to have a better life and i think that's a universal yes a universal that that anybody can attach themselves to and i think um anybody regardless of race religion creed nationality can feel that
1: eric i love what you just said, and that is literally the opening of the book. I start with the story of Rosa and her, it's a pseudonym, Uh, she is undocumented, and I use her story and what she went through, changing some of the details that could locate her, identify her, and the arduous journey that she took to meet her husband in Iowa, so that they could live and provide for their child. They now have three kids, because we've stayed in touch, and just what a parent will do for their child and their children, you know, and that is a common theme of all the stories of not only the brown and black refugees, um, I have gotten the privilege to interview, but also the white ethnics, the white American Iowans, right? Mm-hmm, whose, mm-hmm. Uh, whose relatives came in the 19th century who were poor farmers. Many of them were Catholic. You know, they suffered in, uh, under anti-Catholicism, you know, in the 19th, early 20th century. And I try to show exactly what you just said, how their stories are not really that much different than the newer arrival stories, only in that the capriciousness of immigration policy that were these folks ha- have been dark skinned they may not have been allowed in. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, that is what I want to get across in all of my work, my books, my teaching is empathy is we are all connected as humans. We all want our children, our future grandchildren, if we have them to do better and, and, and we are more connected than we think we are. And Absolutely. um that's why i'm i am personally hopeful with uh, a change in who is going to occupy the white house and i really hope without getting too political with your listeners i really hope that the healing that president-elect biden talked about that we will really see a healing. And I think that um, that's where it's at is, is empathy.
0: Absolutely. Let's shift our focus just a little bit from the line workers to maybe the managers in your, in your work. Have you been able to glean any kind of observations uh, of how religion or faith might manifest or influence the managers that are at these packing plants?
1: Yeah. I'm so glad you asked about the, the, Upper management, the CEOs, CFOs, most of whom are white, most of whom, in my experience, are Christian, Catholic, Christian, mm-hmm. and Protestant, Christian, Methodist, and Baptist, um, and Presbyterian. Absolutely, um, what I found really, um, really rewarding about this research is that you know there there have been a lot of books out, an increasing number of books on the line workers, and absolutely right to point to injustices and inequities and how packing plants can and have and do further those inequities. And that is definitely part of my work and what I'm looking at. But what I also wanted to get across is empathy. And I know sometimes that's harder for my academic colleagues to see, but I'm really trying to push the boundaries here with my academic colleagues. In having empathy for the white upper middle class managers who I found in my research to really be trying to push the envelope and, you know, they're hiring more, um, they want to be replaced by, so these white upper management in many of their stories, like Mike, for example, Mike, who's at IPB. He calls himself an old industry slug. You know, he really kind of cuts himself down, but he's in a position of authority and power and he is hiring Latinas, women of color. And he's like, I hope I can retire soon. They're doing an awesome job. And I, he basically wants to make himself obsolete. And I've I, I heard a lot of stories like Mike's story. Mike is a Republican. Mike voted for Trump. Mike is a small bore range, Uh, you know, he like goes to all these competitions, Mm -hmm, like something mm -hmm. I hadn't even heard about. I'm like really not like into guns and stuff. Personally, I don't really know a lot about them. And so like in talking with guys like um, men like Mike, you know, my eyes were really open to the complexity of their worlds too. And so in my work, I really want to challenge academics to not only unpack the nuances of the intersections of race, ethnicity, migration, religion, but also do that with white folks as well. And I don't think we've done a good enough job. I think that academics, myself included, um, have bought into some tropes of white Americans, and we feel a lot of white guilt. And I think that hinders our taking seriously the ways that you know upper management whites, in this in my case with my research, are really trying to do right by these workers. And I'm, I, I will still criticize these folks. I will still criticize Tyson for some of the stuff they've done, for example. But what I have seen is a real care and concern. I see them, these mostly white men and women going out onto the line, having conversation with the workers, really trying to get to know them, um, really trying to do the work of Christian stewardship in the workplace. Um, I think we can be critical of that, but I think that I want to acknowledge as a scholar that I think they're really trying. Obviously work can be done, but I think they're trying. Right.
0: And and, and, no, I absolutely love that you said that because I don't hear that enough in DEI circles where there is, we have a tendency to paint uh, the, the white, you know, uh, Christian um, um, male, yeah. Uh, in broad strokes and mm-hmm. it's it's very important to understand that there's so much more nuance to that it, people are more than just the base identities i think that that we might assign to them and we we assign it to them right so and and, and yeah. i also I, I love that you that you mentioned um unpacking that and that the managers right now trying their best and maybe that's where maybe that's where academics can also or the academic field can help out is what does the best look like what does how how do how does that old white male what can they do to lift up those voices and you gave us a great story about hiring you know latinas um and and waiting for them to replace you and building them up um so is that the answer though is that the answer just hiring more or is there more to it
1: yeah, I think there's obviously more to it, right? Um, yeah, I, I think that, I'm, I'm glad you shared that, because I'm with you too, and I think that there's so much, um, I don't know, there's so much self-flagellation, uh, whites on our, I mean, including myself, my father's family's Lebanese, my mom's family's Polish, but I'm white, and and I think that, we've almost overcorrected. And I think that what I'm trying to do is to, to show that people are trying, it might never be enough, but I think the problem, you know, the problems of the last, I'm going to say four years in general and just social media, right. Is that I think so many of us buy so easily into cancel culture, Mm. you know, it's so easy to slip into that and just say, Oh, all white women are horrible. All white women are Karens, right? I hate that. One of my best friends from college is Karen. and She's lovely. She's amazing. And she's progressive. And she's like (laughs) one of the best people I know. You know, it's like we, 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 we make people into tropes, white women, white men, you know, black women, black men, Latinos. And I just think we need to stop. And we need to, and we need to stop canceling people when we don't agree with what they say. It's so easy to say, you know, oh, that's not enough. Or that's, you know, not edgy enough or it's not, well, but it's a start and let's have a conversation about how we can make workplaces better. Um, In this case, the meat packing plant, because people will continue. I I myself do not eat meat. I actually, I am a pescatarian. I eat fish, but I don't eat meat. And I want to think like, yes, I would love it if more people didn't eat meat, but the reality, you know, so I didn't have like an ax to grind, like literally going into this project, right? Um, i what i would like to see is like okay the reality is that people will continue to eat meat how can we make workplaces in my mind more friendly to unions because when we when we trace it back to the deunionization you know in the 20th century right around the time of the you know the farm crisis i trace some of this in the in the book you know the deregulation that has been like a huge problem for workers right and and iowa is a right to work state and so I think that, from my perspective, how can companies honor workers' rights? Maybe bringing back unions so that they actually have teeth, not being afraid of unions, and having that conversation. You know, right,
0: um, right. And, yeah. and so let's let's bring it back to a piece that that, that you, you you said. Um, um, I think it's very important, again, with your story about the manager who, you know, the old white slug, who wants, you know, is is ready to retire and get replaced. Um, going back to that nuance piece where we have to separate, and this is for our listeners here, we have to separate the people and the system in which they operate. Yeah. And because there's people that have my, probably have great intentions, or could be super progressive, or um, or know what the fight is all about, you know, whatever that fight might be, but it's the system that all, that they have to operate in. And bringing it back to maybe some of those, some of the conversation we had earlier, the system—it it almost seems like it it begins and ends with policy. Right. It, 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 at least the way I see it is where we, when we write things into law, or when we have, you know, the, the, this HR manual, or this one policy, or this, uh, whatever you want to call it, this document, in which we frame how we how we work. It's so important for our listeners, for those CEOs that are out there. You have to put pen to paper. You have yeah. to put ones to zeros, and make it so.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I fully agree with you here, Eric, on this. Um. Yeah, I don't know what else to add to that but except that I agree and that you know we're all part of a system, right? I think it's mm-hmm. so like impossible to extricate ourselves and to be a purist, right? And whenever I hear like some of my colleagues or friends just like I'm like you know like everything we do is part of a system and so how can we make I guess Because I'm an anthropologist and I think locally, you know, that local economies are all part of larger systems. But like for me, where I feel like I can make a difference as a scholar, as a member of my community, as a parent, right, is start small, right? Mm -hmm. And, And like what can we do by our daily actions, you know, to make the systems in which we operate better, Uh, And maybe it's funny actually because they weren't kidding when I left my week at IPB. They're like, we would love to hire you if you ever, (laughs) if you ever want to leave academia (laughs) and like work. And I'm like, you know, that is really interesting because I, maybe I could make a difference. It would be ironic Mm -hmm. for someone who doesn't eat meat to work in the <laughs> industry, you know, but there's a whole layer, but I thought, you know, that's really interesting because I think it just takes people being creative and people being open to having conversations to move the needle. Absolutely. You know, who knows? Maybe Absolutely. someday you'll see me there. Who knows? I don't know. But please,
0: yeah. l- I would love to bring you back in and talk about your experience <laughs> yeah, <of> yeah. Meat <laughs> at the meatpacking plant. Um, as we wrap up our conversation here, from your perspective and what I've seen and heard you say is how people want to live the best work life they can yeah and, and you know sometimes that includes bringing religion or their faith or however manifests for them into the workplace or bringing their whole selves is what I like to say yeah. into the workplace what do you suggest businesses from from your studies and what you've seen in your observations what should businesses keep in mind to allow people to have their best work life
1: Yeah, I think that's such a great question, you know, because I, again, I know it's a slippery slope. I think for a manager or for the person running the place to have like crucifixes or, you know, like one thing on his or their desk, maybe it's problematic. I don't know, because it might be privileging, but to allow for individual expression, you know, like if anyone comes into my office on campus, granted, I'm working from home because it's COVID, I have all kinds, as a non-Catholic who is very devoted to the Virgin Guadalupe and the saints, I have all of the saints and La Virgen in my office, candles, I have all kinds of things, right? And I think that if that's part of who we are, and if you want your employees, and so many employers like to use a language of family, well, if you Mm -hmm. want your family members to be happy, and if you really want to treat them like family members then okay, if they want to put like a little statue of the Buddha and a little like Zen rock garden on their desk, or if they want to put a cross or, you know, have images on their desks, let's celebrate that. I mean, I think that's a very different thing from it coming down saying, you know, one, you know, can only, I just think allowing for individual expression, which will lead to conversations um, over lunch in the break room when we're out of COVID, I know it's different now, but I think it's a start, and I think that, um, again, I haven't thought of like big mega policies because that's not really the focus of my research so much, but I would be very interested in partnering with people and places um, to make workplaces more inclusive. Because I know when my students in the classroom, when I invite them into the conversation, it's, it's like leaning in, inviting your workers to lean in, inviting your students to lean in and to share their own religious experiences I mean, that makes for a better conversation. That makes for a better class. Now I know that ex-student grew up Roman Catholic and that helps me understand them better. And I can bring it up. Hey, remember when you shared that? That's kind of like this. I mean, so I just think it just leads to a better culture in general, when we know each other and what matters to each other. Arthur Kleinman is a really famous doctor and ethicist. And he's got this great book called What Really Matters. And I think I just love that book so much. And it's all about like bedside stories he's heard from his patients. A lot of them are end of life stories, you know, and like what really matters to people is is a, for a lot of them is their faith. And <laughs> I think allowing a culture where people can share that without privileging one tradition or church over another is a really healthy thing for my perspective.
0: Right. Fr- Absolutely love it, and I think just allowing and what I'm hearing and what I hope the, the our listeners are hearing is, you know, start small with it with this journey. Start small. Allow that little piece. Allow the culture to slowly start building where it is more inclusive, where you can can see the the diversity that's in there uh, in your workplaces. But more importantly, make sure you put it into your policies. Um, so at least that's what I, I'll advocate for. Um, Christy, anything else you want to make sure that, that we really hone on? I, I've been just enjoying this conversation here. Anything else you want to make sure that, that we touch on?
1: No, I've just really enjoyed this. I, I, You know, if any of your listeners wants to reach out to me, just send me an email at the university. But I love what you said about empathy. I love what you said about small steps. I think that's so key, allowing the culture to build and ideally having some policies, you know? I mean, I think uh, down the road, but we've got to build there, and you've got to get a sense of your your people and your community before you can make policy. and they think that sometimes policies are made when we don't know each other that well. And so I think for workplaces, um, I think everything you said I would agree with, start small, yeah, allow the culture to build. I love it,
0: Christy Navin Warren, Professor, Excuse me, Christy Davin Warren. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. What now? What is the name of your upcoming book, and when can we expect it?
1: Yeah, well, the new title—I'm so excited—it's coming out next fall, 2021, with the University of North Carolina Press, and it's called Meatpacking America: How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland so loving it and the, we're working on the, the cover right now and it's going to be uh either photographs done really cool or one of my artist colleagues dr rachel williams here iowa she might be having a painting for the cover so anyway very yeah nice. a year from now so and, <laughs> and for
0: those of you that don't catch it the meat spelled m-e-a-t
1: yeah Yep. love it thank yep. you
0: very much uh professor um you for coming nice. on the show
1: Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. I appreciate it.